Well, there's no escaping the theme of money from this Sunday's readings. I've decided to take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy, in 1 Timothy, Paul gives us some clear, practical, and useful lessons about money. And I'd like you to turn in your pew Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6 because I'd like to start before our lectionary reading. Our lectionary reading kicks off very helpfully, but as for you, flee these things. So I think it might be helpful for us to look at the things we should be fleeing. And so I'm going to be starting our reading in verse 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. At one point in his ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, the poor will be with you always. You'll always have poor people around. Now, I don't think that Jesus meant that there were some people who would always, generation after generation, be condemned to live in poverty for some reason. I think Jesus is far more insightful about that. Jesus says the poor will be with us always because poverty and wealth are both relative. No matter how prosperous a society gets, there will be some who have less and some who have more. This is something that um, many Americans get uncomfortable with, thinking about wealth being relative. I tell my students this when we get to this, this topic. In global terms... If you can go to a place in your house and turn a little metal thing and you get water that comes out of a pipe, you're incredibly well off. And if you can pour that water into a glass and give it to your kids and your kids not get sick, you are rich. And if you can walk within five miles and get to a machine where you can just put in a few coins and that machine will wash your clothes, you are filthy rich, especially if you are a woman. There's a whole lecture there about washing machines. You want to change a society, washing machines will do it about as fast as anything else because it frees up half the population from a tedious part of life to doing all kinds of different things. Americans have forgotten all about that, you know. Americans think you wash clothes so they smell nice. <laughs> We've forgotten why we wash clothes. We wash clothes because clothes, when they get dirty, the dirt gets in the fibers of the cloth, and as you move the cloth back and forth working, the dirt cuts the fibers and your clothes fall apart. We've forgotten all about that. We think we wash clothes so they smell like lilacs. No, we wash clothes because we need clothes. And if you don't do that, you'll run out of clothes very quickly. In global terms, I suggest all of us are pretty much filthy rich. Of course, it works the other way, too. I was listening lately to a reminiscence of a man named Sidney Goldberg. You'll never run across his name anywhere else, but he's an interesting character. And, and his career was, was to, to, to be on the ground in third world countries setting up airports. Two or three airlines would get together and decide we need an airport right here. He would go into that area and grease the palms of everyone who needed to be greased and make the, make the airport work. And he remembers at one point being in a third world country and he, and he has to negotiate with a very wealthy man in the capital city. And he's sitting across from the man and the man mentions that he's been in the United States several times and so they, they, they chat a little bit about America and, and the other man says, I, I love America. 
It's a wonderful place, but it makes me sad because in America, no one can become rich. And Goldberg heard that and kind of crinkled his brow a little bit, but he's here to negotiate business, right? He's not here to correct his, his host, but he just can't help himself. And he says, I'm, I'm sorry, I think I, I misunderstood what you said. What, what did you say? And he said, it's, it's just sad that in America, no one can become rich. And Goldberg bites his tongue and finally says, okay, wait a second. America is the richest country in the world. We have all kinds of rich people and people become rich every day. What, 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 what do you mean? And, he, and the other man laughed and he said, would you call me a rich man? And Goldberg said, yes. And the rich man leaned forward and said, I never touch my shoes. And he sat back. The implication, of course, is he has a servant who puts his shoes on and takes his shoes off. And that's what he meant by rich. Bill Gates has a lot of money. I'll bet he ties his own shoes. Wealth and poverty is relative. We'll keep that in mind as we look at what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's going to tell us two things. He's going to describe to us first how the love of money is a trap. And then he's going to tell us how to avoid the trap. And as Paul talks about money in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he really, in a way, summarizes the Bible's view of money. The Bible has a very complex, convoluted view of money. It doesn't have a simplistic view of money. And its way, its way of looking at money doesn't fit into anybody's social theory or economic principles. The Bible has a very interesting view of money. And we see it right here in 1 chap Timothy chapter 6. Let's start back in 1, Ch 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, you read that and you think we all ought to run off to a monastery and live in enforced poverty for the rest of our lives, reject all kinds of money. It sounds like a very dangerous thing. But then in the same passage, just a few verses ahead in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They, these are the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, this sounds like it's pretty nice to be financially well off. Verses 6 through 10 sounds like we need to get away as far away from money as we can. And verses 17 to 19 tells us if you have lots of money, here, look at all the good things you can do. Well, this is the way the Bible treats money. One after another, we get affirmation of money and wealth and riches. These are good things. And then you don't have to wait too long before you get a warning about money, wealth, and riches because these are dangerous things. 
And Paul tells us why that's the case, because the love of money is a trap. Verses 9 and 10, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It isn't money that is the root of all evil, but the love of money, the desire for money that's a trap. Our snare, and our translation this morning gives us the word snare, which is good because that's exactly the Greek word. It's a snare for birds. To snare birds, you make a, a slip knot or a noose out of wire or string, and then you, you attach the, the other end to something solid to hold the bird, and then you lay it down in a pathway where, where birds will be walking. If you're really sneaky, you get some seeds and you scatter it in that area on top of the snares. And then the birds come walking through and as they walk through, they hit that slip knot. It catches them and then you can catch the bird. Paul says the love of money is a trap. It's a snare. It's hidden and it's secret. And not only is it a snare that is hidden and secret, it's the root of all kinds of evil. Well, how is the love of money a trap? Well, first of all, it fools you into thinking about who you are. And secondly, it fools you into thinking about how much you actually have. The love of money fools us into thinking we aren't who we are. Pay close attention to verse, chapter, or, or verse number 17. As for the rich in this present age. Again, I remind you, if that's the context of this present age... I suggest most of us are very rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Paul warns those who are wealthy, those who are rich, and again, I suggest he's talking to us in a global sense, not to set their hopes on uncertain riches, and not to be haughty and to be arrogant. St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote, listen to this, to see a man humble in prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. To see a man humble in prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. Because success, especially financial success, breeds arrogance and haughtiness, or at least that's the general rule. The more successful people are in one area of life, the more superior they assume they are in other areas of life. And we all know this. We all know people, or at least we all know of people, people who have become incredibly successful in one area of their life and then become dramatic, pathetic losers in another area. Because they assume that since they become successful in one area, they'll be successful in all the areas of their life. The desire for money is a trap because we think that if we have money, we'll have more friends. Read the newspapers. If we have more money, everything will go okay for us. Do you read the newspapers? Well, you don't. Do you go on the internet? Are you in touch with the world? People can have all kinds of money and make all kinds of mistakes. And we all know this. We all know people who are like this. 
And Paul draws up a charge specifically to the rich. And I remind you, most of us are filthy rich, not to be arrogant in what they have, but to put their hope in God. And Paul is very careful to say this is a charge to the rich. It's not advice. It's not counsel. It's not even a warning, but it's a charge. It's a command. Do not be arrogant. Do not think yourself sufficient. Don't put your hope, but, but put your hope in God. The love of money fools us into thinking that we're in control of everything. And then the love of money blinds us to how much we already have. Paul uses some dramatic language here to talk about the love of money. I'm going to be reading from verses 9 and 10 in chapter 6 so that you can see the context. But while you see the context, listen to the phrases that I'm going to pick out and read and see if they don't remind you of something. Paul writes about senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. In verse 10, he says the love of money is a craving that causes piercing pangs. Senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction that bring cravings and piercing pangs. Sound like anything? Class? That's the language of addiction. That's the language of addiction. Senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction that cause cravings and piercing pangs. That's addiction. The pursuit of wealth can be an addiction. And all of us know about addiction because all of us are addicted to something. Some people are addicted to healthy things. Even pursuing healthy things can become an addiction. The pursuit of wealth can become an addiction. And if you know about addiction, then you know about some things. For one thing, there's an ever higher dose needed for the same effect. This is, this is just common stuff here. This is how addiction works. You always need a higher dose for the same effect. Think about that in the pursuit of wealth. Think about your own path in life. As you became more and more financially stable, what were once luxuries become necessities. What were once special treats were always in the refrigerator. What were once things that were set aside for when you had enough money are now just things. And if you also know about addictions, People with addictions tend to hang around with people who have the same addiction. And people who are addicted to financial success tend to hang around with other people who are addicted to financial success. And there's always more people around with more stuff. You have the increased tolerance and the relativity of wealth and that's what sets the trap that's what Paul tells us in verses 9 and 10. And again, this could be true at all levels of wealth. Paul, in verses 9 and 10, is not preaching to the filthy rich. He's talking to people who have a desire for money, a desire for wealth. 
Anyone here free of the desire of money? I didn't think so. This hits us at all levels of wealth. Even by American standards, the very rich, the very poor, and those who are in between, all of us have this desire for money. And why do we? Why do we have this desire? Because the love of money is a trap. It's secret and it's hidden. It's a trap. Jesus says something interesting. We read it a few weeks ago as we came through Luke in our lectionary readings. I didn't notice how unusual it was until I did the preparation for this talk this morning. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, right in the middle of a parable, he says, watch out. Take care. Be on your guard against all forms of greed. Now, what's unusual about that? Well, that's the only time Jesus gives us a warning like that for any sin. Watch out. Take care. Be on your guard against all forms of greed. Jesus never says, watch out. Be on your guard. You might tell a lie. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, watch out. Be on your guard. You might murder someone. He doesn't say that. He says, watch out. Be on your guard. Take very special care. You don't fall into greed. Because greed is a trap. And it's hidden. And it's interesting. As a priest, I hear confessions. Some formal, some informal. I've never had anybody confess to me the sin of greed. Father Myron's had more experience. I can't ask you if anybody's ever confessed a sin to you because that would be violating a rule. But um, it certainly doesn't come up very often, I'll bet. I've never talked to somebody who just says, well, you know, I, 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 I face a, trouble, a struggle with lust in my life, but really my real struggle is greed. I never talk to people who say, you know, I, I wish you'd pray for me. I've got, I've got a love of money. It's never happened. Look, greed is one of the seven deadly sins, and in my priestly career, it's never come up. Covetousness, which is a form of greed, is one of the Ten Commandments. And nobody's ever come to me and said, could you just give me something to think about about, about my covetous attitude? Nobody. Deadly sin, Ten Commandments, it never comes up. Why doesn't it come up? Because it's a trap. Because it's hidden and secret. Because people are blind to it. We're all blind to it. It's a trap. Well, you might be sitting there saying, that guy must be preaching to somebody else. I mean, I'm not rich. Now, Now, look, again, Paul's not talking to rich people in verses 6, 7, and 9, and 10. He's talking to people in general who have a desire for money. And we all have a desire for money. And I suggest all of us are at least very close to falling into the trap. Why are we close to falling into the trap? Because we're blind to it. Money's a trap for everyone, regardless of income or wealth or status. The love of money, it's a trap. So how do we escape the trap? Well, fortunately, Paul tells us. It was just two themes, contentment 
and grace. Verse 6, Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. He uses the word gain there in the Greek text. That's more than just saying godliness with contentment is really good. Great gain, that means a huge fortune. That means 1,200% annual return on the investment. This means a huge return on the investment. Great gain means you discovered something that is incredibly wealthy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What does contentment mean? Well, it means what the word happiness used to mean. The word happiness today means something you never quite get. The classic definition of contentment is happiness regardless of circumstances. But that's an old use of the word happiness. Today, happiness is something you wish you had. Happiness, what's, what, 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 what that means is being peaceful on the interior despite what's going on in the exterior world. An inner peace that no matter what is going on around, whatever's in the newspaper headlines or the, whatever the stock market is doing, there's an inner peace and contentment. Paul says elsewhere, and we'll catch up with him where he says this, and whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. He says, I've learned that in whatever state I am, therewith to be content, to be happy, in that old sense of the word, to have an inner peace. Now, does having more money make you more secure in life? Yes, of course it does. You thought that was a trick question, didn't you? Does having more money make you more secure in life? Well, of course it does. Only a fool would say it doesn't, right? Of course it does. That's not a trick question. Of course. Of course, having more money makes you more secure in life. But can money alone make you feel secure? No. There's the trick question. Of course, people with more money are more secure in life. Of course. But can money alone make you feel secure? No. There's always a little bit more that you'd like to have. The trap is there's always a little bit more that you need to have. Because part of the trap is fooling you into thinking you don't have enough. There's never enough to feel secure. How much money do you need for retirement? Just a little bit more. Maybe if I work for six more months? Maybe another year. Maybe another year. There's never enough. There's never enough money to buy contentment. That's at least the falsehood that the trap sets, right? There's never enough. Money can ease fear and anxiety. Only a, fear would, a fool would say that it doesn't. Of course money can ease fear and anxiety, but it's never enough to take it away. And Paul says if you really want real wealth, you need to know Christ. Paul says some interesting things on this very theme back in Philippians. I'll read it to you. It's Philippians chapter 4. It ends with a fairly famous verse. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi and he's thanking them for sending him some money. He says, this money has come to me right at a time when when I need it. He says, I know you've been thinking about me and praying for me and, and now you've sent me this gift. I want you to know it came at just the right time. And he begins talking about, about the role of money in his life. 
after thanking them for the money, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I hate to break it to some athletes, is not about winning a football game. The all things here isn't scoring a touchdown. The all things here is surviving life. Paul says, I love the alliteration of the King James Version. I know how to be abased and how to abound. In other words, I know how to be at the bottom of the heap. I know how to be at the top of the heap. I know what it's like to have lots of food. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to have people chasing me out of town. I know what it's like to have people welcoming me into town. And in all of those states, I can do these things because I know Christ. And I've learned, Paul says, in whatever state I am, hungry, full of food, welcome, chased out of town, I'm content. I've learned that I can be content because I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. And this is Paul who says this. This is not some pie in the sky, by and by, prosperity gospel kind of stuff. When Paul talks about being content as he goes through life, he's talking about torture and imprisonment and shipwreck and hunger and eventually beheading. He's talking about living a life, read his life story, where he can be welcomed into town one day and chased out the next. Where he can have people saying, this is a great teacher, and then saying, throw him in prison the next day. This is not some evangelist who's going to hop on a plane and fly off somewhere else and sell this stuff to somebody else. This is a guy who lives the life of torture and imprisonment for the gospel and he says, I've learned whatever is going on around me, I've learned to be content. Why? Because I can deal with these things through Christ who strengthens me. And over and over and over again, what does Paul tell us? Paul tells us that the bad things will be put right, the good things are going to last forever, and the best things are yet to come. And this is Paul who says this. Not some guy who's got a slick suit and is going to sell you something. This is Paul. And over and over, Paul tells us the bad things are going to be made right. The good things are going to last forever. And the best things are yet to come. And you might say, well, this sounds like pie in the sky by and by to me. Well, okay. But stick around. These are big claims. The Christian claims claim that bad things will be made right. The Christian claim that good things will last forever. The Christian th- claim that the best things are yet to come. It takes some time to work through all those things. We don't have time this morning to work through all those things. But if you keep coming back, you're going to hear these themes hit continually. The bad things in life, God's going to make right. The good things in life, God says they're going to last forever. And the best things, God says, are yet to come. I'm not going to hit all of those this morning, but stick around. The Anglican poet George Herbert, you, you may have come across his, you may remember his poetry, even if you don't remember the name, in a college lit course, because when you print out his poetry, right, they, they make shapes, 
like angel wings and things. If you kind of like have a vague memory of, of a poet who did that, it's this guy, George Herbert. He says, I wish I could remember the line for you because he says it better, but he says, he says, death used to be a gardener, but the gospel, no, 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 death used to be an executioner. I messed it up, blew the line. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has turned death into a gardener. Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel turns death into a gardener. And if you understand what the resurrection is about, then you know what George Herbert was talking about. Death used to be an executioner to be feared, but the gospel has made him a gardener. Well, again, we don't have time this morning to unravel all of this, but if you know what the resurrection is and what it's about, then you know what I mean. And you know what Paul means when he says, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And you know what Paul means when he says, I can face all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, okay, you say. You might say, well, you know, I do believe all that stuff about Jesus, and I believe, you know, the, the real thing about Christmas, and I believe the real thing about Easter. You know, I really do believe all that stuff, but I'm still not content, and I'm still anxious, and I'm still insecure. Well, okay, you're still human, all right. But what can help? If you're facing discontent and anxiety and insecurity, well, maybe you need to rely on God's grace, you need to hear God's grace proclaimed. You need to hear yourself proclaim God's grace. You need to meditate on God's grace. And in this passage on money and what to do about money, what does Paul do but hit that theme of grace? And it's in chapter 7, I mean, verse 7 of uh, chapter 6, back to 1 Timothy. For, let me back up to verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we bring nothing into the world and take nothing out of the world, who gives us what is in the world but God? Paul's here referring back to Job, making a reference back to Job in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Job, at least in a nutshell. Job loses all of his wealth, all his family, all of his health. And at one point, Job says, naked came I into the world, and naked I will go out. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked came I into the world, and naked I'll go out. In the Bible, nakedness means more than nudity. Nakedness means defenselessness and helplessness. A newborn baby is naked, in the sense that they're nude, but they're naked in the sense that they're defenseless and helpless. And at death, all of us are going to be naked, even if we have clothes on, because we're going to be defenseless and helpless. Because if we weren't, we wouldn't die. All of us came into the world defenseless and helpless, and all of us are going to leave the world defenseless and helpless. And don't we want to cover up that nakedness with fig leaves? Because we don't want to be defenseless and vulnerable. But what all of Scripture teaches us is that we can't cover our own nakedness. You can't build security for yourself. Our psalmist test tells us you can't, this morning tells us you can't even put trust in a prince to build security for you. You're naked when you enter the world 
and you're naked as you leave it. If you are familiar with the book of Job, you may remember that Job maintains throughout the book that he's an innocent sufferer. But from the New Testament, we see only one innocent sufferer. And of course, that's Jesus. Jesus who left total security and total contentment to walk among us. And like us, Jesus was born naked. And like us, Jesus dies naked, literally naked on a cross and defenseless and helpless. What's more defenseless and helpless than having your limbs nailed to a piece of wood? There's nothing you can do. Absolute vulnerability. Absolute defenselessness, absolute vulnerability, and a true and total lack of security and contentment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not the song of contentment. Accepting total vulnerability, defenselessness, and a true lack of security and contentment, hanging there naked on a cross so that you and I can be clothed in his righteousness. In just a few words here, Paul hits at God's gift of unmerited grace and undeserved grace. All the fancy theological words, salvation, adoption, justification, sanctification, all those precious gifts, all provided to us with absolute security because Christ gave up all security so that we could be clothed in the perfect security of Christ's righteousness. And what was the cost of our security to Christ? Well, okay, we're thinking about money. Let's think about money. If you pay X for Y, that means you value Y more than you value X. If you walk up to a vending machine to get a Coke and you put two quarters in the vending machine to get a Coke, first of all, tell me where that vending machine is because I haven't seen a 50-cent vending machine in a while. Um, Man, now they got them where you got to put your credit card in. If you need a credit card to buy a Coke, my goodness, what in the world? Anyway, um, if you put... 50 cents into the vending machine and get a Coke, what you're saying is the Coke is, is more valuable to me than 50 cents is, or at the very least, it's worth 50 cents to me. Jesus purchases our total security through his lack, complete lack of security. Obviously, he values our security more than he valued his own He took on the shame of defenselessness and nakedness and gave up complete security for you and me at no cost to us. That means he values you and me more than all of that. And when you start to even get a glimpse of what that means, you see that you are Christ's treasure and that he's yours. And once you see that, then you'll always be wealthy. And the recognition, and, 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 we, and we want to like, don't we want to do the Gnostic thing and put, and put that, financial, that, that spiritual wealth over in this box where it doesn't have anything at all to do with our financial wealth in the real world, right? Don't we want to do that? Isn't that always the rage? To put the spiritual stuff over here because real life is over here. Paul won't let us do that. 
Because Paul tells us about our spiritual wealth, and he says once you get a glimpse of what that spiritual wealth is, then it's going to affect the dollars that you have in your wallet. And now we come to verses 17, 18, and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. What are the rich to do? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here, all that spiritual talk hits financial reality. Just think in pure financial terms. If people did what Paul tells them to do here, to be generous and to share from their wealth, that means automatically that they have to live below their means. Right? If you make $100 and you give away $5, that means you live on $95 right? If you do that, you've already destroyed the trap of greed because you've already demonstrated you've got enough. Part of the trap of greed is, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. If you take whatever you have and you give a little bit of it away and you live on that, you've already destroyed the trap. It's gone. You've already demonstrated you do have enough. And that pang, that piercing pang of desire is gone. The trap that's set is broken. In Jesus' name, amen.